come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode number 75 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And here on number episode number 75, I'm actually going to be doing my top 25 horror movies that start with the letter B. I'm also going to do some honorable mentions, as well as my bottom 10 that also start with the letter B. Now, this list originally started because I was working through a horror movie encyclopedia, as well as the Fangoria Top 300 issue. Now, I'm pretty sure I kind of go into a little bit more of there, but I haven't watched every single film that starts with this letter, but these are the ones that I had compiled into a list, wanted to check out, and I'm constantly learning about new ones and adding them to this thing, so this is definitely a fluid list. Outside of that, I do have many reviews of The Unholy from this year, Daughters of Darkness, Jekyll from 2007, and then The Dark from 2005. So I don't really think there's anything else I need to kind of get you up to date with or anything like that here. So what I am going to do, though, is get you over to a brief break here before I get into those mini-reviews and then the feature on this show. So I do want to say that I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini-review this week is going to be what would have been my Odyssey Through the Ones 2021 film, which is The Unholy. This is written and directed for the screen by Evan Spilotopoulos, and this is also from the novel from James Herbert. This stars Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Cricket Brown, and William Sadler. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a... 2.3 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being a hearing-impaired girl is visited by the Virgin Mary and can suddenly hear, speak, and heal the sick. As people flock to witness her miracles, terrifying events unfold. Now, this is a movie that I actually have to thank Kate Pollock for turning me on to. We were chatting on a post about subgenres that we enjoy, and she asked if I planned to see this. 
I don't really watch trailers, but I did look into this and it piqued my interest. Jamie decided to see this with me as well and we went to the local theater. Now what I'm gonna start off here is stating that this is of course one of my favorite subgenres of like religious-based horror. It's kind of funny because I'm not religious, but religion does fascinate me and even more with the conventions that this movie is using with it. Since this movie is starting off with an execution of a witch, I will start there. We get quite a bit of films on either side here where they're actually either killing a witch or they're doing it in air because of a, you know, a more barbaric time. So, you know, you kind of have films on either sides here and you have quite a bit on, you know, doing both of these. Now, this could be a spoiler, but the character of Mary Eleanor, who is portrayed by Marion Mezapa, is actually a witch. She did have a pact with the devil, and I do like that they are have, you know, records in this movie to help fill in this backstory. Going along with this, I do have a minor gripe that they use the mask of Satan and that it wasn't removed before this witch starts doing, you know, what it does when it comes back. This is something that is supposed to limit them. Now, I do admit it does make for some cool images, and I can get why until, you know, something is revealed later in the movie. Now, there are also hand-drawn images of popular things from, you know, Christian mythology and everything like that, and I like how they pop up regularly in movies like this. Now, where I do want to shift next would be the character of Jerry portrayed by Jeffrey D. Morgan. He was on top of the world in his profession as a journalist, but we learn as it goes on, he did some corrupt things to stay there. And then, you know, he ends up getting busted for it. I like that he's capitalizing on what is in front of him. He is greedy and prideful, and he is also the reason that everything in this movie happens. I do believe that he would do some of these things, and I think Morgan's ability to play this cocky attitude really brings this role, you know, he brings a lot to it as well. This is also a redemption tale for him that I also liked as well. So next I want to go to the elephant in the room for this movie, which I've already brought up, is religion and the corruption there. Father Hagen, who was portrayed by William Sadler, is a good guy. He is raising Alice, who is portrayed by Cricket Brown, who, since her parents have died, has grown up in the church. She is innocent, and this entity is capitalizing on it. It also heals her hearing and ability to talk. The seduction there makes a lot of sense. Now, Father Hagen is worried as the word of what is happening is getting out, and this could ruin Alice's life like it has for others that have discovered things like this. They used real events, which makes it even more impactful. Now, Father Hagen wants to protect her, and I should also point out he's actually her real uncle in this movie as well. These are all good aspects as well, so I do need to say that. Monsignor Delgardi is also good in my opinion. He is there trying to disprove it, but I think that we should be questioning our beliefs. Despite him coming off as hard, he just wants to make sure that the validity and does seem to want to protect Alice as much as he can on top of that. So this movie does explore the horrors of Catholicism and religion in general. Bishop Giles, who is portrayed by Carrie Elwes, really just wants to further the church, whether it is through publicity or monetary. He seems nice at first, but he is a scoundrel. We also have all the followers who come and believe in Alice. I really think this movie is pointing to the fact that many followers of religion do it blindly. I can see getting sucked in. Alice can talk and hear when she has never been able to. The character of Toby Walsh was portrayed by Danny Corbo, couldn't walk and now he can. Father Hagen had emphysema and she cures it, which at this time isn't possible. There are things that can blind followers. I think this movie is commentary is on not blindly following and to question at all times. There's also a miracle that happens in this movie that I wasn't a big fan of. I get why it's there though. It just goes against my personal preference for movies and how they end. Now I really like that this has everything I wanted to go for into the story. Next I want to talk about the acting. Morgan, as I said, fits this role perfectly. He brings a lot of sarcasm and just charisma to the role. I really feel like he could be this photographer. 
Ellis is actually solid here as well. I really like that at first it seems like he could be good, but there's just something there you just don't trust. And it makes sense as the movie goes on with the reveals. Sadler is f solid as Father Hagen. I'm not sure if I've ever seen him in a bad role. Brown does great as Alice. She just has an innocence about her that is needed. Then we have Katie Esselton and Morgato. And the rest of the cast just fits for what was needed. The last person I just wanted to give a little bit of props here to would be Mazepa, who is the Witch of Mary. Now, some things else that I need to kind of get out here would be the effects. This movie does rely on jump scares. I'll admit, there were a couple of times that it got me, which doesn't happen often. I will say that seeing this with Jamie might have been part of the reason there, as she gets caught up in jump scares quite easily. So I will still give credit to the movie, though. I do think they do good when they go with the practical effects. And I mean, those look good to me. Seeing the dark entity I thought was creepy. And also getting to see Alice as she is seeing Mary bathed in this light was good. There is some CGI fire that doesn't look good though. I did notice some of the other parts here as well with the CGI that don't necessarily work for me. Aside from that, I would say that the cinematography was good as well. So then really the last thing I'd go into would be the sound design and soundtrack. For the former, I think that they use it strategically. I like that they quickly establish that Alice is deaf with having no sound. It is a subtle shift that she can hear and I like that. And then there's some musical cues for the jump scares. Not always the biggest fan there, but I would say that on the whole, the music works for what was needed. In conclusion here, I really like this movie. Seeing the score on the IMDb and then hearing that this was kind of paint by numbers for a movie like this, I can see that. I'll probably be higher due to most of the social commentary and what I can take from it. I think the concept here is interesting. The acting was good in my opinion. The effects I'm positive on. And for the most part, I would say that the rest for the soundtrack and sound design as well. To close this out here, I don't think that everyone will enjoy this as much as I did. I'd say that if for, this is a good movie for something like this and would recommend if this subgenre works for you. This is another movie that I do want to revisit before the end of the year to see you know, where I'm kind of sitting after a second viewing. So my rating for The Unholy from 2021 is an 8 out of 10. And then for the other Odyssey of the Ones part of this episode, I watched Daughters of Darkness. This is a rewatch from 1971. This goes by the original title of Les Eleves Roges. Not sure if I said that right, but... This is directed by Harry Kumel, and then he also helped come up with the scenario along with Pierre Durot, and then the dialogue was written by Jean Ferry, and then uncredited there's Manfred R. Kohler, this stars Delphi Seyrig, John Carlin, and Danielle Omet. This is a horror film that is from a co-production between Belgium, France, and West Germany. This is currently sitting on a 6.6 .6 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a newlywed couple are passing through a vacation resort, their paths cross with a mysterious, strikingly beautiful countess and her aide. Now this is a film that I heard about, I think first on the podcast Under the Stairs during their summer challenge series for the 1970s. I heard their thoughts on it and didn't really know a whole lot beyond that. Now I got the opportunity to see this on the big screen at my theater when Fright Club Live did a recording and showed this afterwards. Now I have given it a second viewing as part of you know this of my podcast here. Now the first thing I really noticed about this is the kind of the deeper social commentary that comes with this film that is still relevant today. The character of Stefan, who is portrayed by Carlin, is very controlling. He doesn't want to visit his mother, which is an odd situation to begin with when we see the mother while they talk on the phone. His wife of Valerie, who is portrayed by Omet, has legit concerns that you would expect your husband to work through, but he doesn't. He tries to boss her around, and he really doesn't respect or honor anything that she says to him. 
we definitely see this today and i know a couple of people who think that this is you know still okay but stefan is very misogynistic he is interesting that this is you know from 40 plus years ago and still relevant today something else that i really enjoyed about this is having the character of countess bathory this is a character that i find to be fascinating i'm not entirely sure if she is based in real life but the concept of her is fantastic she considered to be a vampire to keep her skin youthful she would bathe in the blood of virgins she normally appears in films like this because, you know, she's also a lesbian and would come on to women. The moment I found out that this was the name of the character, I knew exactly what we were kind of getting into. What I like about this movie, though, is that we don't really know if anything is supernatural here or not. We suspect the Countess is involved with this murdered victim in, Burg in Bruges, but there isn't any proof. It isn't until much later in the movie that we get those answers to these questions like this. And something else I want to kind of go into here would be the concept of the setting. There are only five people staying at this hotel, and it is during the winter and being located on the water, so no one is staying there at the moment. We have both of these couples, and then Pierre, who is the hotel clerk, portrayed by Paul Esser. This feeling of isolation and being in a foreign place really makes this much more eerie as well. There's something subtle that I picked up on here with the second viewing was that Stefan cannot read Flemish and Valerie doesn't realize that she can until he pushes her to do so. Because I guess this is kind of like a variation of German. So that adds to the feel that people are speaking a language they don't understand and they can't necessarily read everything either. Now something I do have an issue with though would be the pacing. I think we get a decent setup and introduction to everything. After my first viewing I thought this movie was boring. I don't necessarily believe that after the second one. The movie runs about 97 minutes so that helps there. This movie does still meander a bit but it's not as much as a problem this time around. There is something with this last scene that we get that doesn't really sit great with me, but I do think it's a bit outrageous with some of the things that happened right before it as well. Now, what I did enjoy about this movie was the acting. Seyring is really good as Countess Bathory. She's a woman that is rich and is used to getting her way, but she's also actually quite empowering with Valerie. Carlin is kind of a scumbag. I don't really like how he's treating his new wife, and it really seems like they rushed into this marriage without really knowing each other. There is a scene with him that makes me hate him around the halfway point as well. Omet, I thought, was solid. She is somewhat weak in the beginning to Stefan's demands. I like as this film progresses, she really stands firm as to what she's done and makes decisions for herself. Now, part of this is what happens with the Countess, but it still works. She becomes stronger. We do get to see her topless a few times, which is nice. And then the Andrea Rao plays the secretary for the Countess of Ilona. We don't really get to see a whole lot of her. She doesn't have much screen time. She is quite attractive, and we actually get to see her completely naked, which I didn't have any issues with there. The rest of the cast really rounded this film for out what was needed. The only one that I'm confused by is Fonz Rodismaker as Mother. This was left unexplained, and I'm not really sure why it was done that way. So onto the effects here. There really weren't a whole lot of them, to be honest. I did like the effect they would use for ending certain scenes where it would fade to red, which is a color that is used prominently throughout for good reason. The little bit of blood that we get looked good. I thought the color was fine and the consistency was solid. I do have to say that I also like the color choices of some of the outfits. Countess is wearing white when she's trying to convince Valerie to stay, while Ilona is wearing black when she's trying to seduce Stefan. I really enjoyed the stylistic choices here to match what they're doing, and the film was also shot very well in my opinion. So the final thing I would touch on would be the soundtrack. I noticed that some of the scenes were just completely quiet and it was unnerving. What was really happening in them was mundane, but I just noticed how quiet and it makes it awkward. That was a solid choice. We do also get some music that really helps to what we're seeing on the screen as well, so I would say this is well done overall. 
Now, with that said, this film, I think, has its place, even though it is slightly flawed. I thought that the concept of the movie was solid, but the deeper allegory of what we're seeing was interesting. The acting, I think, helps bring this to life. There's a bit of pacing issues for me. I really didn't care for the ending, as I thought it was a bit cheesy. The effects were solid, and the soundtrack really helps to enhance the scenes. I do think this film is above average and would recommend giving this a viewing if this sounds good. I will warn you, though, that this is from Belgium, France, and West Germany as the production. And, you know, this is also from the 1970s, so if that's an issue, I would avoid it as well. But my rating here for Daughters of Darkness is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And then I watched Jekyll from 2007. This is written and directed by Scott Zakarin, and this is from the novella from Robert Louis Stevenson. This stars Matt Kieslar, Jonathan Silverman, and Alana Ubeck. This is a horror sci-fi thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.6 on IMDb and a... Actually, not enough ratings on Letterboxd at the moment, but it looks like it's hovering around like a one and a half star. With our synopsis here then being, while researching a cure for cancer, Dr. Henry Jekyll creates a computer-generated alter ego of Mr. Hyde, a creature of animal appetites and uncontrollable impulses who tries to destroy his own creator. Now, this is another adaptation of the Stevenson novella of, you know, the, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that I picked up some time ago and am just now watching. I knew this is a lower-budget effort coming up, but then I was surprised to see some of the actors that were actually in this. It makes me think that the writer-director here of Scott Zakarin might have worked a bit in Hollywood. Not any of them are A-list, but there's some recognizable faces. So this is another take where they updated the story to modern times. I'll be honest, when the DVD menu came up, I was quite nervous as I had a feeling that this was going to get some bad CGI here. We really do get some of that, but before I go into what I don't like, let me start with the positives. The first thing is that I really like the idea that Henry is trying to prove his experiments and that is that the human brain is kind of like a computer and it can do some great things. So they're trying to say here that being positive, how it can have a you know positive impact on the body. And I even like that this movie that he is being mocked by his fiance's father and his friend of Dr. Jonathan Flagstaff, who is Steve Fogel. This actually makes it a more interesting commentary here about you know them being old school and wanting to resort to medication to treat things instead of a potential cure that involves more of the human body. Because the experiment is actually trying to rewire the brain since we don't use all that much of it to see if it can kind of cure ourselves that way. So the experiment might not actually ever work, but I just like the idea of actually trying it though. Now there are a lot of issues with this movie though. First it would be with Henry and Hyde not looking that much different. Hyde really just has mutton chops, which I did find it funny is that there's a throwaway line that Henry wants them. Then Hyde also has these bright contacts that are white as well, you know, to make his eyes look funny. Other than that, they look pretty similar. I will forgive this a bit, you know, being movie logic. I just think that outside of some bad dialogue, Kiesler here is actually solid playing both characters. Then the issue here is also with the CGI, and that's where I'll go next. I don't fully understand why they're using a PS2 for their experiments. I'm assuming they did something and then used that system to run what we're seeing. It does seem like they're using it to explore the experiment. I like the idea, but the graphics just don't hold up. That goes for pretty much all of the CGI. Also, they're using this little handheld machine that was cheesy to me that is the, instead of using like a serum to drink, that's what causes the change. I do like the idea from the novel that Hyde has gotten stronger to the point where he can come out on his own. It really embodies the idea of being tempted by evil that takes over. Though back to the effects though, the practical stuff that we get is fine and the cinematography is a little bit erratic for me. Then there's the acting here. 
Silverman, Ubeck, and Spencer are all people that I've seen in other things. Now, Jonathan Silverman is a bit over the top, but I come to expect that from him. Ubeck is a bit more subdued than I'm used to for her. She fits fine for the role that she has. And then Abigail Spencer is quite attractive, but they don't seem to give her much depth of the character. And then we also have the stripper in the movie of Sienna Gones. Now, she's interesting. Her character is a rough life, and she portrays this trashy stripper well. I don't know if we're supposed to feel sorry for her because we lose that as things go on. Aside from that, I thought Desmond Askew as Ziggy Poole was fine. John Rubenstein also worked. And then we also get Josh Stewart here in a minor role. And I do also want to give some credit to this movie, you know, for taking the names from the novel and incorporating it here. And then really the last thing I want to go into, despite being good source material, is this movie really doesn't know what it wants to do. It focuses a lot on Henry coming to terms with Marion Talia. He loves her, but he doesn't want to join the family. Hyde just goes about on a rampage of debauchery. There are just so many scenes that don't really add anything and they just go on for too long that it hurts what this movie is trying to do for me. It felt like they had actors they wanted to showcase, but it doesn't work for the story itself. So in conclusion here, this movie isn't very good. I do like the idea that we're working with here with the experiment and what it leads to. I even think that for the most part, the acting is fine. My problem then becomes that the effects aren't very good and some of the things they focus on don't really hold my attention. This movie isn't poorly made, but it just shows that a lack of some things to, you know, kind of set it apart by using the source material. It is a below average movie for me, and I can't really recommend it. So Jekyll from 2007 here is a 3.5 out of 10 for me. And then I also watched The Dark from 2005. This is directed by John Fawcett. This is from the novel by Simon McGinn, and then the screenplay is from Stephen Masakati. This stars Sean Bean, Maria Bello, and Sophie Stuckey. This is a drama, fantasy, horror, mystery thriller that is a co-production amongst the Isle of Man, the United Kingdom, United States, and Germany. It is currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd. When tragedy strikes this broken family, they are visited by a young girl who has a startling resemblance to their daughter. Now, this is another movie that I'd never heard of until it popped up in that horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working through. Aside from that blurb that was in there, I came in pretty blind. Now, it did have Sean Bean and Maria Bello, who are both actors that I do like, so that intrigued me. The other thing is that I learned that, you know, from the opening credits, that it's also based off of a novel, which, another thing that sometimes you might be able to get a little bit of deeper story, or you might, you know, not be able to flesh it out as well either, you know, kind of goes both ways there. But this movie does have an interesting idea for me. Now, if you know me, I'm fascinated by religion and mythology. Learning about this myth from Wales kind of sucked me in. I don't know if what we're learning is real, because I haven't had a chance to kind of look into it, but the whole legend here is that in Wales, I guess, they believe that there is this kind of afterlife that is called Anwen, and this kind of gets played into with this movie. Now, we have this story from the past that about Rowan, who is kind of a minister of a sorts, and they call him the Shepherd. Now, he is portrayed in this movie by Richard Elflin. Now... He is drawing parallels to Jesus, who is also considered to be a shepherd. The flock is his followers, and it's interesting idea that the sheep, because of you know the name that this is based off of, is actually sheep. When the backstory is filled in by David, who is portrayed by Maurice Roves, it really kind of made a lot of sense to me. Back to what I was getting at, though, is that unlike Jesus, Rowan has his followers kill themselves for his own selfish needs. I can't blame him for the reason behind it, but we shouldn't sacrifice others for our selfishness. 
Now, that will also take me to the core of this movie, which is a family drama. We never learn what causes James to leave and flee to Wales. Now, James is Sean Bean, but his wife, Adele, seems to have a bit of a drinking problem, so I don't know if that is why he left or if she started because of him leaving. Now, Sarah has been left with Adele, and the younger woman wants to be with her father. This causes strain between them. We see that Adele and Sarah bicker. As the movie goes on, we see that this caused a pretty traumatic thing to happen. This all adds elements to the story and pushes us to where we go in the third act. Now, there's also the effects for this movie. The concept of Anwen is an interesting one, and I like the visuals that we get there. We don't really know if what we're seeing is real or not. Now, I won't spoil why, but I do like having this hazy greenish color. You can tell it isn't the normal world. There is a bit of nightmare logic there, as well as what, you know, that works for me. Aside from that, I like what they're doing with making people look evil. It is even better when they do it with the sheep on that side as well with these glowing eyes. There aren't a lot in the way of effects aside from that, but there is some hinted torture. We don't see a lot of it. As I said, it is implied, but we do get some blood there, which also works for me. Aside from that, I thought the cinematography worked as well. Then the acting, I thought that Bella was fine as our lead here. We get to see that she's a broken character. Now, she loves Sarah and wants to do what she can to repair their issues, but she has to fix herself first. Being as good as the father, what I like here is that he is more of the rock of the family. He doesn't believe in the supernatural, but he is doing everything he can for his daughter. Rove's as good as his character to help fill in the backstory. Stucky is fine along with Abigail Stone, as they're both the young girls in this movie. I also like the brooding entity that Elflin portrays. Aside from them, I thought the rest of the cast fit for what was needed. Then the last thing I would want to go into here would be the sound design. I do think the movie missed a bit of an opportunity here. James and Sarah play a game with Morris Code. They do use this when she disappears to get Adele to try to keep looking for her. I think they dropped the ball a bit here though, and I don't think they do enough with it. The rest of the sound design and the music kind of fit for what was needed. Then in conclusion here, I think there's an interesting concept to this movie. I like the story that they are presenting to us as that works. There is a family drama that is the crux and the possible supernatural elements underneath it. I'd say the acting works for what was needed to bring this to life. The effects we get work, and I do think that there is a missed opportunity though with the sound design. One last thing is to say is that I did watch on the DVD that I have the alternative ending, and I think that they went in the right direction for the movie for the one that they selected. It is darker and more brooding, which is something I usually prefer. So with that said, I think this is an above average movie. It is just lacking some elements for me to bump it up to that next level. So my rating for The Dark from 2005 is going to be a 7 out of 10. So that's all I have for mini reviews for this week. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one more break before I get into the featured part of the show. And I want to welcome you back. So for this here... I decided that since this is episode number 75, I would do another list episode, like I said, on the outro of the last one. So what I decided to do is, because I'm working through a list alphabetical order, I have completed all of the movies that started with the letter B that are on there. It's not to say that I've seen every single movie that starts with the letter B, but these are the ones that were in the Fangoria Top 300, or they were a part of the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working for. Or I just kind of sought them out on my own or listened to podcasts and these are ones that all kind of popped up and I've watched at this time. This list is also a little bit outdated as I have not seen all of these movies for either a very long time or I have not seen them more than once. So just kind of keep that in mind. If there's any sort of recommendations or anything that I need to kind of check out, let me know as well because I would appreciate that feedback. But what I'm going to do... 
for the horror films that start with the letter B. I'm going to start with my honorable mentions that didn't make the top 25, and they were all better than my bottom 10. So coming in as my first honorable mention is Bird Boy, The Forgotten Children from 2015. This goes by the original title of Psycho Notes Los Niños Olivabatos. Not sure if I said any of that right, so, you know, here we are. This was written and directed by Pedro Rivero and Alberto Vasquez. The voice acting here is Andrea Alzuri, Eva Oganuri, and Yasu Kubaro. This is an animation drama sci-fi that has some horror elements. And this is a co-production between Spain, Japan, and the United States. Now, it is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being is that three children decide to leave their homes looking for a better life. Now, this is one that I've only seen once. It was at the Gateway Film Center. I just blindly went and checked it out as I thought the trailer for it looked pretty cool and everything like that. This is a weird kind of allegorical tale where we have these animals that are you know, kind of living more human lives and they kind of go about different things. And the main character is Bird Boy, who actually never speaks in this movie. Like I said, only saw this that one time. Definitely one that I would like to revisit. But I definitely think it's one that I wanted to make sure that made this list. And I'm pretty sure my rating here on it was an 8 out of 10 after that first viewing that I had for it. And then for the next honorable mention is The Boy from 2016. This is directed by William Brent Bell. This is written by Stacy Minear. And then this stars Laura Cohen, Rupert Evans, and James Russell. This is a horror mystery thriller that is from a co-production amongst the United States, Canada, and China. This is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being... An American nanny is shocked that her new English family's boy is actually a life-size doll. After she violates a list of strict rules, disturbing events make her believe the doll is really alive. Another one. I believe I've only seen this one once. I know I watched it with an ex, and we both kind of really enjoyed it. It's one, though, that, as you can tell, I'm not overly high on. I do think that the twist was pretty interesting. Not something that's all that new, but it would be one that I do need to revisit again just to see where I'd kind of sit on the second viewing and just to see if there's any sort of tells or anything as to what the reveal is. But I still enjoyed this movie, and that is why you know it's going to be coming in at this spot here on my honorable mentions as an 8 out of 10 as well. And then another one that's pretty new that I've recently seen is Bloody Hell. This technically is from 2020, but I did you know watch it this year as it just got its release in this year. Now, this is directed by Alistair Grierson. This is written by Robert Benjamin. Stars Ben O'Toole, Meg Frazier, Carolyn Craig. I'm not going to go into a whole lot with this one just because it was recently on an episode, which is number 73. If you want to hear more of my thoughts, I do have a featured review over there. Just kind of wanted to point it out here that it does make list as, you know, movie that starts with the letter B as this spot here on my honorable mentions with another 8 out of 10. And then one that I've seen a few times actually is Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. This came out in 2006. This is co-written and directed by Scott Glosserman and he also co-wrote this with David J. Stivey and this stars Nathan Basel, Angela Gertels, and Zelda Rubinstein. Another one that I'm not going to delve too much into because I did do a mini review of this one on episode number 68. 
I've seen this one, as I said, I think like three times now. This one just keeps getting better and better every time that I see it. It's one that like I randomly had sought out, and then when I got into podcasts, people started talking much more highly about it and made me kind of look at it in a little bit different ways. Definitely think this is another one that I think it's going to continue to go up for me. I do think it's going to be getting close to its peak kind of spot for me, as I do have some slight issues with it. But I think Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon is a solid little film that I come in with an 8 out of 10 on. And then I have Brawl in Cell Block 99. Now this is one that not everybody would consider horror. I consider it to be dark enough to include it onto this list, especially as an honorable mention here. This is written and directed by S. Craig Zoller. This stars Vince Vaughn, Jennifer Carpenter, and Don Johnson. This is a action crime drama thriller technically that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a former boxer turned drug runner lands in a prison battleground after a deal gets deadly. Now this is another one. I only saw it once when the year that it had came out. I definitely got to chance and really enjoyed seeing this. This is one that kind of falls into that like exploitation where I guess you could consider this a prison exploitation type film. I think the acting is really good. I like to see Vince Vaughn because he does have that comedy that I do enjoy by him, especially with his sarcasm and everything. But seeing him more of these serious roles like this, it just shows how good of an actor he can actually be when he, you know, is given that opportunity. This movie does get quite brutal as it goes on, and that is, you know, another reason why it's fallen here at this spot. Wasn't horror enough for me to go higher for. I do want to rewatch this though, just to see, you know, what that second viewing would take me for it. But for this one, sitting at another eight out of ten. And then the next honorable mention that I have is Blood Quantum. This is from 2019. This is written and directed by Jeff Barnaby. It stars Michael Greyeyes, Ellie Meja Tailfeathers, and Forrest Goodluck. Now this is one that I've actually covered a couple times here on the podcast. I did a featured review of this movie on episode number 38 and then also did a kind of update for on episode number 58 as a mini review as I did watch this twice in prep for my year-end list. So this one actually is coming in as a honorable mention here, so I won't delve into that. If you wanted to check out more of my thoughts there, I would recommend going to check that out. But I do think this is an interesting little zombie film with, you know, doing its own little twist on it that Shudder has put out there. Now another one that might shock you is another honorable mention that I have is Black Christmas, the one from 1974. This is directed by Bob Clark. It was written by Ray Moore. This stars Livia Hussey, Kier Dooley, and Margot Kidder. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from Canada. This is sitting on a 7.2 and a 3.8 that was on IMDb and Letterboxd respectively. And then during the Christmas break, a group of sorority girls are stalked by a strange killer is the synopsis. Now this one, I'll admit, it might be a little bit lower than some people. I don't love this film, but I have seen this a handful of times, and this one does seem to grow on me every time that I do watch it. I have to give a lot of credit to it as well as being, you know, one of the earliest slasher films that kind of started to do the actual formula. I'm a big Olivia Hussey fan. This is another one that I do feel like I need to... It seems to get better with me after every watch, and I think that does really kind of help to build it up. But at this time, it's still sitting on an 8 out of 10 for me. And I should also point out as well, because I realized I just didn't do it, is that Blood Quantum is also sitting at an 8 as well. And my next honorable mention is Baskin from 2015. This was directed by Can Evernall, who also helped to write this with Ogunkin, Aaron Akay, Earson Sadakoglu, and 
Kem Azaduru. Probably did not say those right, so I do apologize. This stars Mamet Sarah Hoglu, Gorkum Kassal, and Ergen Kuyusu. This is a crime drama fantasy horror mystery thriller that is from Turkey. This is sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a squad of unsuspecting cops go through a trapdoor to hell where they stumble upon a black mass in an abandoned building. Now, this is another one. I've only seen it once. This was as part of the Fright Club where they do, well, before COVID happened, they were showing a screening once a month of horror films that had a kind of theme that they were doing for their podcast. Got to see it there on the big screen. As I did hear a lot of people talking about this when I got into podcasts, so actually getting to see it. This movie was, you know, a trip. I really enjoyed what they were doing. It ticks a lot of my boxes for films that I'm really into. This is one that I do want to revisit now that I have seen it, just to kind of, you know, see what I might have missed now that I've experienced it and to see if I can delve a little bit more into what this movie is doing. But, you know, this first viewing, I still think it's, you know, an honorable mention to be on this list here, and I came in once again with an 8 out of 10. And then I have Brain Damage from 1988. This is written and directed by Frank Henenlotter. This stars Rick Hurst, Gordon McDonald, and Jennifer Lowry. This is a comedy drama horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being one morning, a man wakes to find that a small, disgusting creature has attached itself to the base of his brainstem. The creature gives him a euphoric state of happiness that demands human victims in return. Now, this is one that I first got turned on to it going through the Fangoria Top 300 as well as the horror movie Encyclopedia. I watched it, didn't love it the first time, but I also don't think I was really knew what I was getting into. I've seen it a couple more times since then, and this is another one that keeps going up for me every time I do watch it. I do love the creature and kind of the ideas that they're working with there. It's been a long time since my last viewing of this movie, but I also do like the visual effects that we get here while he, our main character is in that euphoric state. Just kind of an interesting film, and I mean, another thing is that Hen and Lauder does a great job at just making the New York City kind of have its own character and everything like that. So I do enjoy those aspects for this movie. One that I would be, you know, excited to see, you know, once more, especially if I can get to see it on the big screen, as I don't believe I have yet. I could be wrong there, but I think this is one that would definitely benefit, or even now if they had like a 4K for it, or, you know, I wouldn't even mind picking up the Blu-ray to watch it on my, you know, TV that I have just to kind of experience a little bit more than the DVD that I have been watching it on. Once again, though, another one that I have sitting at an 8 out of 10 for brain damage. And then my last honorable mention is Byzantium from 2012. This is directed by Neil Jordan. It comes from the play by Myra Buffini, and who also wrote the screenplay. This stars Saracen Ronan, Gemma Arterton, and Sam Riley. This is a drama fantasy horror thriller film that is from the United Kingdom and Ireland. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being residents of a coastal town learn with deadly consequences, the secret shared by the two mysterious women who have sought shelter at a local resort. This is another one I haven't seen for quite a while. I've only seen it that one time, but I did pick this up when I was working at Family Video as kind of a blind spot. When it got released, I took it home as a pre-street and end up really enjoying this film. It's got a really kind of deep story from what I remember it. And this is one that I do really need to revisit just to see what my thoughts are, you know, 
having only seen it that one time and then revisiting it now that I kind of have an idea of what this was about. But definitely, you know, kind of an interesting take on the vampire film. So that's going to end all of my honorable mentions there. This movie, as I should also say before I, you know, end this little section here, is that this was also an 8 out of 10. So let me get into the 25 through 11, and that will start with is The Brood from 1979. This is written and directed by David Cronenberg. It stars Oliver Reed, Samantha Egger, and Art Hindle. This is a horror sci-fi film that is a Canadian production. It is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb, nice, and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, a man tries to uncover an unconventional psychologist therapy techniques on his institutionalized wife, admits a series of brutal murders, this is another film that I sought this out when I was working my way through these lists that you know I've combined and everything like that. I did most recently watch this this year for the podcast Under the Stairs Movie Club Challenge as we were kind of going through the David Cronenberg films. This is one that I liked it the first time that I saw it, and the other two times I believe that I've seen it now. It just keeps going up for me more and more. This is really kind of a personal film for David as that he was going through a divorce when this movie was, you know, being made and everything like that. So there's some really touchy wounds there and everything like that. I just love the concept of these little creatures and how Oliver Reed's character plays into everything like that. I think this is a really solid film that like Duncan McLeish was saying is that a little bit under talked about when you talk about, you know, Cronenberg's filmography. So I definitely, you know, enjoy giving this one a rewatch. So my rating here for this one at number 25 for the brood is a eight out of 10 as well. And then coming at number 24, I have The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. This is directed by James Whale. This is suggested by the original story written by Mary Shelley. It was adapted by William Hurlbut and John L. Balderston. The screenplay was also written by William Hurlbut. And then some uncredited stuff here is we got like Joseph Byrne and Lawrence G. Blockman for adaptation. Robert Flory for story, Philip McDonald for adaptation, Tom Reed was a contributing writer, R.C. Sheriff did the adaptation along with Morton Coven, and then Edmund Pearson, also uncredited work on the screenplay. The stars Boris Karloff, Elsa Lanchester, and Colin Clive. This is a drama horror sci-fi film that is from the United States, one of you know the Universal Classics. This is sitting on a 7.8 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis here being, Mary Shelley reveals the main characters of her novel survived. Dr. Frankenstein, goaded by an even madder scientist, builds his monster a mate. Now, I'll be honest here. This is the one that I like better than the original Frankenstein. I do have some slight issues, though, is the fact that Instead of making one film, they took the actual novel and broke it up into two different parts. So it's the original Frankenstein and then its sequel here. I do really like this one a lot better, though. My problem with these Universal Classics, though, is they kind of rush through the story. And then we don't get as much of the creatures. And it's mostly just kind of at the end. This one does a little bit better. So we do get to see Frankenstein through most of this, where the bride really doesn't come around until the last, like, kind of section there. I do think it's kind of interesting in introducing this other scientist here that takes the, you know, Dr. Frankenstein character and kind of goads him on, like the synopsis stated. I've seen this one a, like, two or three times, I believe. I think the last time was actually in the Gateway Film Center for, like, their Universal Classics run that they do there. So this one, though, I do think is an interesting film. 
one that I don't know if I'll ever go higher on it. I didn't watch these films growing up, so I don't really have a whole lot of nostalgia, but I can recognize that this is great filmmaking, and James Whale was such a you know solid director for the era, and it's kind of a shame from some of the things that I've heard that kind of ruined his career. So my rating here for Bride of Frankenstein is going to be an 8 out of 10 as well. And for my number 23 film, I have Black Sunday from 1960. This went by the original title La Mascara del Dominio. This is directed by, of course, the great Mario Bava. This comes from the screenplay that was co-written between Ennio Di Cosini and Mario Senadrade. And this is from a tale from Nicolai Gogol. And then the English dialogue was written by George Higgins. And then also some uncredited screenplay work were Mario Bava, Marcello Cosi, and Dino Di Palma. This stars Barbara Steele, John Richardson, and Andrea Cecchi. This is a horror film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a vengeful witch and her fiendish servant return from the grave and begin a bloody campaign to possess the body of a witch's beautiful look-alike descendant with only the girl's brother and the handsome doctor standing in her way. Now this is one that I once again saw as I was working through some of those lists. Didn't really see it before that. I've seen it like two or three times now and the most recent was back in November during Italian Horror Month. I did watch it on episode number 53 as one of the mini reviews on there. I enjoy this film, but I don't know if I like it as much as some people do. I know some people have it rated higher than I do. So if you want to hear more of my thoughts on a mini-review, I would recommend checking that episode out. But I still enjoy this. Not a bad film at all. And definitely, you know, kind of has some interesting aspects to it. I'm still sitting on an 8 out of 10 from the last time that I viewed this. And that is why it comes in at this position here on the list. And at number 22, I have The Bay. This is from 2012. It was directed by Barry Levinson who also helped come up with the story with Michael Wallach, who wrote the screenplay. This is starring Will Rogers, Kristen Connolly, and Keither Donahue. This is a horror sci-fi thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, Chaos breaks out in a small Maryland town after an ecological disaster occurs. Now, this is one that I took this home when I was working at Family Video, another one of those pre-street things. Didn't really know a whole lot about it. I ended up really enjoying this, and it really kind of freaked me out. I know my sister has watched this, and has showed my parents. I have watched this twice now, with the second time I showed Jamie it, and we watched it during the summer and everything, which probably wasn't the greatest idea during a pandemic. I just think that, yes, there's some parts of this that are unbelievable, but there's so much of this grounded in reality that could actually make some of this stuff actually happen that it's just such a impactful film to me and just kind of scary that if we don't kind of change our ways you know we could ruin the planet like we get in this movie here even though this isn't a small town that it's happening in but there's much larger implications that could come from it so i did really enjoy this film as much as you can for you know as bleak as the subject matter is so for my rating for the bay here is an eight out of ten as well and at number 21 this one, I'm going to tell you right now, is going to be woefully underrated by me, and I definitely need to give this one another rewatch, but it's The Beyond from 1981. This goes by the original title of E Tu Vavari Nel Torero, El Aldelia. Probably didn't say that right, but you know, oh well. Now, this is directed by Lucio Fulci the Great, who also helped co-write the screenplay with Dardano Sarchetti and Giorgio Mazzuro, 
and Sarchetti also wrote the story. But there's also inspiration here from H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. Both of them, those are uncredited. This stars Katarina McCall, David Warback, and Sinziri Monrelli. This is a horror film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a young woman inherits a old hotel in Louisiana where following a series of supernatural accidents, she learns the building was built over one of the entrances to hell. Now I believe this one didn't really know about until I got into, you know, working through those lists. Pretty sure this was in the Fort Fangoria top 300 for sure. This one I watched and I liked it, but I didn't really necessarily understand the nightmare logic. Now that I've kind of expanded my viewing horizons, I did watch this a second time, but I still wasn't there yet. But this is one that, you know, kind of freaks me out. It's my one of my favorites from Fulci, and it's also one of, I mean, this is my favorite when you go to the Gates of Hell trilogy as this falls in the middle there. I do know that the last time that I did view this was I was on the Horror Haven podcast, which they really don't do anything anymore, which is a shame. But they had me on to, you know, cover all three of the Gates of Hell films from Fulci. So this one is, like I said, my favorite. I do think I have it woefully underrated. I do need to give this one another rewatch as, you know, now that I've seen more Fulci films and even know more about Italian cinema from the last time that I have watched this, I do know for a fact that this rating will come up. I have it currently sitting at an 8 out of 10, but that is mostly just because of when I watched it. And breaking us into the top 20, I have The Bad Seed from 1956. This is directed by Mervyn Elroy. This was for the screenplay from John Lee Mahan. The play was written by Maxwell Anderson, and then it comes from the novel by William March. This stars Nancy Kelly, Patty McCormick, and Gage Clark. This is a comedy drama horror thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a... 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis as a housewife suspects that her seemingly perfect eight-year-old daughter is a heartless killer. This is another one. I've only seen it once. I got turned on to it by my mother, who really enjoyed this movie. And when I watched this, this really did kind of blow me away with a lot of it, the performance from McCormick, being as young as she is and just how evil this kid is. But it's kind of hard to, you know, kind of fault somebody like that. But this kid definitely is on the path of being a sociopath. Now, the father does seem to spoil her where the mother is more concerned with some of the actions that she is doing. I really do need to revisit this movie just to kind of see where I sit on it now after a second viewing. But I do know, like I said, from that first one, it definitely kind of ticked a lot of my boxes, especially the whole creepy kid type thing is a interesting little angle to kind of play with there as well. So this one as another one that if you kind of have a theme running here is that this one is also sitting on an 8 out of 10 for me after that one viewing. And for my number 19 film is going to be The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. This goes by the original title of Yucaselo della Piume di Cristallo. This is written and directed by Dario Argento. It stars Tony Musante, Susie Kendall, and Enrico Maria Salnaro. This is a horror mystery thriller film. And I should also point out here, this is a giallo. And one of the first ones that I've actually ever watched. And it's a co-production between Italy and West Germany. This is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being an American expirate in Rome witnesses an attempted murder that is connected to an ongoing killing spree in the city and conducts his own investigation despite himself and his girlfriend being targeted by the killer. 
Now, this is one of the first Dario Argento films that I ever saw, which is kind of interesting for the fact that this is his first film as well. Now, I really liked this one, but the first time I saw it, I was, you know, kind of cool on it. The more I started to learn about Giallos, the more my rating came up. I most recently reviewed this last year during the Where to Begin with Giallo over on the podcast Under the Stairs, as this was the first one that was selected, so all the way back, I believe in like January or February, whenever that show officially had started. I really enjoy this movie, so every time I've seen this, my rating has come up. I think I've seen this two or three times total. I believe one of the times was actually in the theater as the Gateway Film Center did a Dario Argento Appreciation Month where this was one of the films that they actually had showed. So I think here, I know some people kind of rate this as one of his best. I think this is sitting outside of my top five, but it's really hovering right around there, and it's crazy for your first film to be, you know, that well done. So my rating here, this is finally breaking my ratings that I've been doing previously, is that the bird with the crystal plumage I have at an 8.5 out of 10. Then coming in at number 18, I have Beetlejuice from 1988. This was directed by Tim Burton. The story was between Michael McDowell and Larry Wilson. And then Michael McDowell also wrote the screenplay with Warren Scochran. This stars Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, and Michael Keaton. It's actually a comedy fantasy film, but I also feel like there are some definite horror elements here. This is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being the spirits of a deceased couple are harassed by an unbearable family that has moved into their home and hire a malicious spirit to drive them out. This one, of course, is a staple of my childhood. My dad had this recorded on VHS, and I'm pretty sure that it didn't even have, like, from the actual beginning, because I really only remember when they actually head into town and, you know, kind of miss just, I don't know, maybe two or three minutes at the beginning of it, but when I definitely have seen, like, you know, a full on, when I had the DVD and everything like that, did get to see this in the theater. Really kind of fun to finally see it on the big screen, because when this came out, I was one years old. So I don't think my parents would have taken, you know, me to see this. But this one, like I said, my sister and I would watch quite a bit. I think Michael Keaton is great here. Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin just play so well off each other. I love the Dietzes. You know, they kind of bring their own kind of flair to everything there as well. Just kind of a fun movie. Not necessarily a horror film in, you know, more of the traditional sense. We just have some of the elements like ghosts. And there are some definitely some creepy and, you know, even somewhat scary type moments in it. But this is just a fun film overall. Another one, though that I'm going to come in for Beetlejuice here with an 8.5 out of 10. Then coming in at number 17 is Battle Royale from 2000. This goes by the original title of Batu Ra'aro. This is directed by Kinji Fukushima. This is written by... Well, the novel is actually written by Koshun Takimi and then the screenplay by Kenti Fukusaku. This stars Tatsuya... Fujiwara, Aki Madia, and Taro Yamamoto. Now, many people might not actually consider this to be a horror movie, which is fair, but I do. And, but this is listed as an action-adventure drama sci-fi thriller that is from Japan. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, In the future, the Japanese government captures a class of ninth grade students and forces them to kill each other under the Revolutionary Battle Royale Act. Now, I don't see how people can't see this as a horror film, but I can also understand it because this is does have a whimsical type nature to it. You know, it's government kind of doing these things, but we literally have these children, you know, killing themselves a la, you know, what the Hunger Games stole despite what the author there said. Now, 
I saw this originally when right after college. I didn't even know about it. My buddy of Robert told me about a friend who had this on DVD. They let me borrow it. I watched it. Absolutely kind of really enjoyed what they were doing here. And then got to see it again as the Gateway Film Center. I don't know why they showed it, but had a screening of it, you know, for a stretch there where I did get to catch it while I was there. You know, finally seen it on the big screen and everything like that. I do think some of the comedy does hurt this film and kind of loses some of the tone that you need. I still think there's a great story here and, you know, definitely some horrific elements, kind of what they do here. And, you know, it is still, I hate to say this, kind of a fun film despite what they're kind of working with there. So this is another one that I have for Battle Royale sitting at an 8.5 out of 10. And also, I realize I didn't also say this, but I did do this actually as one of the mini reviews on my very first episode. So it's probably not great, but if you do want to hear a little bit more, that is where I kind of have more of my thoughts as well. And coming in at number 16 for me is A Bay of Blood from 1971. This was directed by Mario Bava. It also went by the original title of Ecological del Dilitilio. And then the screenplay was co-written between Bava, Giuseppe Zaccarello, and Filippo Antono. Then Dardano Sarchetti and Gio Barberi helped come up with the story. Then the dialogue was written by Jean Latuto. And then there's also some uncredited screenplay collaborators of Laura Betty, Sergio Cannavari, and Franco Venaro. This stars Claudine Auger, Luigi Pastilli, and Claudio Camasso. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from Italy. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, the murder of a wealthy countess, which is erroneously deemed suicide, triggers a chain reaction of brutal killings in the surrounding Bay Area as several unscrupulous characters try to take over her large estate. Now, this is a movie never really heard about when I got until I got into podcasts, and then I end up checking this out. Now, I have given this a second viewing. That It was on Shudder, which was nice, but Duncan picked this as the last film for Where to Begin with Giallo. This is kind of an interesting Giallo, and I'm glad he uses this one to end that series, as it feels like it's trying to break the Giallo mold since, you know, so many have been coming out after, you know, the whole boom and everything like that. This movie's also interesting in that Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th Part 2 definitely stole a bunch of kills from this one. If you want to hear more of my in-depth thoughts, I definitely would recommend checking out Duncan's podcast there, as I do have a little bit longer review. I don't love this one as much as other people. I do kind of respect it as this one really kind of helps create the old like slasher, you know, subgenre that, you know, had that boom later into, you know, started in the late 70s and then really kind of made its heyday in the 80s. This is really kind of a fun film. I don't necessarily love all parts of it, but definitely does have an interesting story in my opinion as well. So my rating here for A Bay of Blood is an 8.5 out of 10. And I will also say I actually prefer the alternate title of Twitch of the Death Nerve because that is just great. And then starting off my top 15 here, I have Brightburn from 2019. This was directed by David Yaroveska. This is written between Brian Gunn and Mark Gunn, which I'm, I believe are brothers. And then we the stars Elizabeth Banks, David Denman, and Jackson A. Dunn. This is a drama, horror, mystery, sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, what if a child from another world crash landed on Earth, but instead of becoming a hero to mankind, he proved to be something far more sinister? 
Now, I've only seen this movie once. I saw it in theaters, and I really enjoyed it. I wasn't necessarily sure what I was going to get out of it, but I just really like this idea is that let's take Superman's origin story, have him crash land on Earth, but instead of becoming the hero that he becomes, we actually have him become a villain and what we get here. This movie's pretty gory. Some of the CGI doesn't necessarily work, but I really like what they do with the story to this movie. Definitely one that I do want to revisit. I don't necessarily know if it's going to stay as high, but I do really think this is one that I'm not too far off because I still really enjoy, and even when I'm thinking back of it, I'm thinking of it fondly. Not one of those ones where I think my rating might be off on it by too much. So this is one that's going to you know, be changing the ratings finally. As the last time I saw this movie, I gave Brightburn a 9 out of 10. And then at number 14 here, I have The Belko Experiment from 2016. This is directed by Greg McLean. This is written by James Gunn. It stars John Gallagher Jr., Tony Goldwyn, and Ardia Arjona. This is a horror thriller that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, in a twisted social experiment, 80 Americans are locked in a high-rise corporate office in Bogota, Colombia, and ordered by an unknown voice coming from the company's intercom system to participate in a deadly game of kill or be killed. Now, only seen this one once. I got this on DVD and watched it and really liked it. I know I turned my family on to seeing this movie as well because they are, you know, horror fans. And I just really like the concept that I've worked in offices for, you know, a decent portion of my adult life. And I could really see something like this happening. It kind of goes to what you do in high school where little cliques or people you don't like or people that you'd want to kill first. There's that aggressive guy who you don't really know about. So, like, once, you know, you have to kill or be killed, he's going to do some crazy things. I think my rating might be a little bit high on this one looking back on it. I do need to rewatch this, though, just to kind of see if that's the case. But as, as I said, having worked in this type of scenario, I can really kind of get behind this movie and I'm actually kicking myself because I haven't seen Mayhem yet, which has a definitely similar uh, premise. And a lot of people like that one better. But back to this movie here, I really enjoy what this one's doing. It'll probably come down finally when I see it, you know, that second time. But at this time, as this is a fluid list though, the Belko Experiment I have sitting at a 9 out of 10 as well. Then for number 13, I have The Babadook from 2014. This is written and directed by Jennifer Kent. It stars Essie Davis, Noah Wiseman, and Daniel Henshaw. This is a drama horror mystery thriller that is from a co-production of Australia and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a single mother and her child fall into a deep well of paranoia when an eerie children's book titled Mr. Babadook manifests in their home. Now this is a movie, only saw it once when it, you know, I don't, I don't think I actually watched it the year that it came out, but I know when I got into podcasts, that's why I watched it. Now I did watch it a second time as the Gateway Film Center was re-showing it for whatever reason. I think it might have been because of Kent's second film of The Nightingale was coming out. And I can say, like, having seen this twice, I really like what this movie is doing. It's really playing with grief and mental illness and just how this mother is trying to cope with her annoying child and, you know, trying to make things work. You don't know what's real and what's not because a lot of this is due to, like, sleep deprivation and then just stress and everything like that. I really like the creature look and how they kind of play with stuff. There really is using references back to, like, early cinema with some of the stuff that they do there. And, I mean, the picture book is very similar like that as well. 
this is just an interesting film that I do have a lot of enjoyment watching, even though it is very bleak. But those are, you know, kind of more movies that are up my alley. So this is one that I don't think will ever go up higher than where I have it rated right now. But my rating for The Babadook is a 9 out of 10. Coming in at number 12, I have The Blair Witch Project from 1999. This was written and directed by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. This stars Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard. This is a horror mystery film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being three film students vanish after traveling into a Maryland forest to film a documentary on the local Blair Witch legend, leaving only their footage behind. Now I'll admit, when this movie came out, I was like 12. My family, we rented it and watched it together, and this movie terrified me. I think a lot of it is like how well they did, and we really didn't have the internet then, so a lot of it was just kind of making it seem like this could actually be real. Now, having been a little bit older, I understand that that's not the case or anything like that, but just the amount of care and everything they put into it really just helps to build that ambiance and everything that they're going for here. Now, I did get to watch this. You know, I've seen it quite a bit when I was growing up as we had this on VHS. I did get to see it in the theater when they were showing it at the Gateway Film Center. I think it might have been their Horror 101 series is why this one came up. And now I'm thinking about it. The Babadook was probably as part of that as well. So I did actually watch this back in March of 2020 as it was part of my St. Patrick's Day episode. So, like, that is where you can kind of hear a more mini review of this movie. Definitely one that is one of the better found footage films. Helped to kind of bring that whole subgenre back. So, my rating here, after, you know, I also did, actually, I just forgot. I watched this with Jamie as well. as She had never seen it, and I thought it would be one that might spook her a little bit. And, you know, definitely was kind of creepy. Especially because we got to watch it in, you know, comfort of our own home with, you know, all the lights off and everything like that on our bigger screen TV. So, but anyways, as I was going to say, my rating here on this movie, don't think I'll ever go up higher than this. There is some historical significance that I give to it as well. So I have it rated as a 9 out of 10 for The Blair Witch Project from 1999. And the last film for this section here is going to be The Blob from 1988. This was directed by Chuck Russell. The earlier screenplay was written by Theodore Simonson, as well as Kay Lineker. The story is from Irvine h milgate and then the screenplay that it seems we actually got to see here was the director of chuck russell co-wrote this with frank darabont this stars shawnee smith kevin dillon and his beautiful plumage mullet and donovan leach jr this is a horror sci-fi thriller film that is from the united states it is currently sitting on a 6.6 on imdb and a 3.5 on letterboxd with the stops as being a deadly entity from space crashes near a small town and starts to consume anyone in its path. Panic ensues as shady government scientists try to contain the horrific creature. Now, I'll be honest. I grew up watching this film. My dad had this recorded on VHS, and my sister and I would watch it quite regularly. But it wasn't really until I got a little bit older that I actually really started to appreciate this movie. I have watched the original Blob as well as the sequel there. I find this one to be superior in almost every way. I really enjoy this film and think that it's done a lot of good things. I be, I know I've watched it a lot growing up. I think I've seen it a few times as an adult and I think twice with like a critical eye. This is actually one of the better remakes. and I think this is how you should do a remake where you're taking the basic story and kind of expanding on it. This film has some great kind of deaths, some really good, you know, practical effects that are all done in there. 
And I mean, one last time, talking about Kevin Dillon's beautiful mullet that he has as well. So I really like this film. I think this is great, and I also have this rated at a 9 out of 10 in my opinion. So that's going to end this section right here. I'm going to go ahead and rest my voice for a little bit before I get into my bottom 10 horror films that start with the letter B, as well as my top 10 of letter B as well. So be right back. I would like to welcome you back. And then before I get into the top 10, I'm going to give you my bottom 10 horror films that start with the letter B. And then coming in at number 10 for me is Blood Feast 2, All You Can Eat. This is from 2002. This was directed by Herschel Gordon-Lewis. It was written by W. Boyd Ford. And then it stars Trey Bosworth, Lavelle Higgins, and Mark McLaughlin. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis is a cannibal caterer kills various young women in preparation for a ritual feast for a long dormant Egyptian god that has him under its control. Now I've only seen this one once. I do have a soft spot for the original one and this one came out quite a bit afterwards. I remember just not really liking it. The comedy didn't really land with me. I do kind of want to give this a rewatch as there's a good chance that this could actually come off of this bottom list for me but the reason it's fallen here is that for the kind of reasons I've already said there I don't remember a whole lot of it so that's you know not good in its favor but the last time I watched this one I actually gave it a three out of ten and then for my number nine on this bottom list is bite me from 2004 this was written and directed by Brett Piper this stars Aaron Brown Julian Wells and Rob Monkowinski this is a horror film that is from the United States it is currently sitting on a 4.9 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being when a hybrid strain of bioengineered marijuana is delivered to a secluded strip club. It brings with it a monstrous army of insect creatures and a renegade U.S. federal agent with a big chip on his shoulder. Now this is another one. These movies really just don't fall into kind of my wheelhouse, so that's why it's you know rated here so low. I've only seen this one once. I do know this is one of those ones where there's a lot of nudity, and you should come to expect that when you see Aaron Brown starring in this. I know this one's fun. Some people enjoy this one as if you were, you know, having, you know, recreational drinks or drugs or something like that. I know it's one of those type of films. It doesn't really land with me. I do plan on giving this one a rewatch at some point just to see if I've been a little bit harsh on it or not. But this is another one that, you know, is coming on this bottom list here. And I have it at another 3 out of 10 for me. And then for number eight, I have Bates Motel from 1987. This was written and directed by Richard Rothstein. This stars Bud Court, Lori Petty, and Moses Gunn. This is a comedy drama horror film that is from the United States. This is also a TV movie. I should point that out as well. Then this is sitting on a 3.8 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a mentally disturbed man who roomed with the late Norman Bates at the state lunatic asylum, inherits the legendary Bates Motel after the death of Norman, and tries to fix it up with a respectable business. Now this one, another one that I feel like I might be a little bit harsh on, but the comedy really doesn't work for me. I don't mind the basic premise of this, but it does seem like from what I read that this was actually going to be like a pilot for a potential TV show that just didn't work out. So there's a lot of stuff that got added here in the movie that really just doesn't kind of sit with me. There's kind of some ghost things that are happening that 
I just don't think it all works together and meshes as much as they like. It was fun to see a young Lori Petty, as I know her from, you know, some of the Polly Shore comedies and stuff like that. And she did a lot in the 90s. This movie, though, just really just kind of didn't work for me. I think once I give this one another rewatch, I don't think it's going to come too far off of this, but I might be able to come up a little bit higher on it. But after this initial viewing, this is another one that I have coming in at a 3 out of 10. And for my number 7 film on this list is Blood Rain Deliverance. This is from 2007. This was directed by Yu Bull. The story was came up with by Christopher Donaldson and Neil Every, and they both helped to write this with Masaji Taiki. This stars Natasha Malti, Zach Ward, and Michael Pare. This is a action fantasy western and technically a horror film because it is dealing with Blood Rain as a vampire. This is a co-production from Canada and Germany that is currently sitting on a 2.7 on IMDb and a 1.4 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis is Rain, the half-human, half-vampire warrior ventures to America's 1880s Wild West to stop the vampire Billy the Kid and his posse of vampire cowboys. Now, the best part of this movie is the concept. Now, I really like the Blood Rain video game where she is dealing with Nazis. This one, though, just doesn't necessarily work for me as well. U-Bull just doesn't really work on the grand scheme of things. Like, I've only played the original Blood Rain game, so I don't know if, you know, she ever does go to the Wild West or anything. Probably not because that first game is set during World War II. But this one, I think the acting is fine. The concept works. I just know for his films that they just kind of go over the top. There's usually bad CGI. Been a long time since I've seen this one. I don't foresee my rating changing much if I watch this one again. It might keep hovering around where I have it now, which is a 3 out of 10. So I'm a little bit higher than the average rating for this one. And then my number 6 film here is actually interesting enough is Billy the Kid vs. Dracula from 1966. This is directed by William Bodine. This is written by Carl K. Hittleman. This stars John Carradine, who is you know definitely quite great in his everything that he did. And then Chuck Courtney and Melinda Casey. This is a action drama horror western film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.8 on IMDb and a 2.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Dracula travels to the American West, intent on making a beautiful ranch owner his next victim. Her fiance, outlaw Billy the Kid, finds out and rushes to save her. Now this one, another one, I think the concept is kind of cool. A little bit cheesy and everything like that. The problem is the filmmaking just wasn't very good. I remember it being pretty boring and everything like that. I just think that the concept that they're trying to work with, they just didn't have a lot of budget to do anything there. And this is one that I do kind of want to rewatch because I feel like I might have been a little bit harsh on it just to see where I would come from a, you know, second watch. This is one that was on a list, the two lists that combined that I was working through. Definitely know it was in that horror movie encyclopedia because it's one that I had never heard of outside of that. Another one, though, that I wasn't very high on, of course, you know, being here, is that my rating looks like it's a little bit below what the average was here as I came in with a 3 out of 10 as well on this one. And then starting my number, you know, my top five of this bottom horror list is going to be Blood of Dracula's Castle from 1969. Nice. This is directed by Al Adamson and then uncredited was Don Hulet. And then it was written by Rex Carlton. This one also stars John Carradine, so I do apologize to him. You know, God rest your soul. Paula Raymond and Alexander D'Arcy. This is a 
horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.5 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Count Dracula and his wife capture beautiful young women and chain them up in their dungeon to be used when they need to satisfy their thirst for blood. Another one I don't really remember a whole lot about, so that's partially why it's on this bottom list here, is that it was quite forgettable for me. I do think that it had another one that had an interesting concept. It just, I think it was cheap looking. Al Adams said, I know for him, he did a lot of, you know, kind of lower budget stuff as well from my limited knowledge on him. But this one, you're taking, you know, some classic characters and then you're not really going far enough with things, especially when this came out, is that you're coming at the late end of the 60s, early 70s, where, you know, things were getting a little bit more sleazy and everything like that. Like I said, I don't remember a whole lot, so I do want to revisit this just to see after that second viewing where my rating would go. Another one that I found out about because of that horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working through. But this is yet again another one that I have a sitting at a 3 out of 10. The number 4 on this list is Bloody Murder from 2000. This was directed by Ralph E. Portillo. This is written by John R. Stevenson. It stars Jessica Moore, Peter Galamet, and Patrick Cavanaugh. This is a drama horror thriller film that is from the united states it is currently sitting on a 3.0 on imdb and a 1.9 on letterbox with the synopsis being plans for summer filled with fun and romance turned to terror for a group of young counselors now this is clearly a ripoff of like friday the 13th and everything like that they're trying to i feel like incorporate some comedy into this to try to you know alleviate some of that I remember this being just a very boring slasher film where the kills weren't very good from what I remember. I think it was just very cheap. It's been a long time since I've seen this one. Like, I believe this might have been, you know, right after college. So I've never really given it a rewatch or revisited. I've been kind of holding off on it. I honestly feel like my rating would probably go down. But this is one, like most everything that I have, I do always like to have a second watch just to kind of feel like I, it solidifies my thoughts. But this is another one that was quite forgettable. I think I just blindly watched this one, or my sister might have recommended it for some reason. But it's another one that I came in with a 3 out of 10 on. And then my number 3 film for this bottom list is Blood Freak from 1972. This was co-directed between Brad F. Grinter and Steve Hawks, and they both helped co-write this. And then this stars Steve Hawks, Dana Cullivan, and Randy Grittner. This is a horror sci-fi film that got an x rating originally which is shocking and this is from the united states it is currently sitting on a 3.7 on imdb and a 2.3 on letterboxd with the synopsis being a biker gets a job at a turkey farm and agrees to act as a guinea pig for some chemicals that need testing failing to anticipate the murderous side effects now this movie i remember being a kind of psa about not doing drugs and whatnot and saying that if you smoke marijuana you will become a monster of sorts i do remember a guy talking directly to us giving us a lecture this movie just is boring they don't really focus on things things look cheap and you know i'm usually all for like low budget cinema and everything but this one just doesn't work for me i don't really enjoy it all that much and i remember it being as i said kind of boring and everything that's why it's fallen here on the list and i was kind of forgiving here and gave this one another three out of ten just for some of the cheesiness and then the second worst on this list is blood orgy of the she devils this is written and directed by Ted V. Michels. This stars Lila Zabarin, Victor Ize, and Tom Pace. This is a horror thriller film. And I don't know if I said this, but 1973 was the year. And this is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 
3.2 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being Lorraine and Mark enter the world of witchcraft where Mara foretells the future and helps them remember their past lives. When a series of mysterious murders begin to occur, they turn to Dr. Hellsford for advice. Another one that I don't really remember a whole lot about, but I just remember it being kind of boring and kind and it's sad because it's following stuff that I like with cults and witchcraft and stuff like that. I just don't really think that it does a whole lot to really kind of hold my attention. And yet again, though, another one that I'll keep reiterating that I do want to revisit just to see if maybe I'm being a little bit harsh on it. But I mean, I'm right there with what the people on IMDb are thinking as I came in with a 3 out of 10 on this one as well. And then the worst film that I have on this list here is The Beast of the Yellow Knight. This is from 1971. This is written and directed by Eddie Romero, and it stars John Ashley, Mary Charlotte Wilcox, and Leopoldo Salcido. This is a horror film that is from the Philippines and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 3.2 on Letterboxd and a 2.3 on IMDb. And then the synopsis is, Satan saves a man from death on condition he becomes his disciple, and as it turns out, a hairy, murderous beast. Another one that was a low-budget effort, which I usually can be a little bit forgiving, but this movie, again, was really boring. I don't think they really took too much care into the story. The effects weren't great, and I remember just watching this once, being really confused as to what the heck I was seeing. This is another one that I found because of the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working through. I will revisit this one at some point, just to kind of see if... Again, I'm being a little bit harsh on it, but it was quite forgettable because I don't remember a whole lot outside of the, you know, at least practical effects they do to make the main character be in the monster that he is. But even though these are all tied at the same exact rating, which these could all be somewhat interchangeable, this is the lowest one that I have on here, though, even though it is coming in once again at a 3 out of 10. And then to get back on the positive train here, I will go to now my top 10 horror films that start with the letter B. And the one that I have up at the 10 position is Better Watch Out from 2016. This is directed by Chris Peckover, who also helped write this with Zach Kahn, who came up with the story. This stars Olivia DeJong, Levi Miller, and Ed Oxenbald. This is a comedy horror thriller that is from a co-production of the Australia and the United States. And this is sitting on a... 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being on a quiet suburban street, a babysitter must defend a 12-year-old boy from intruders, only to discover it's far from a normal home invasion. Now, this is one that I love the Christmas setting, and it also kind of feels like if we took Home Alone and made it into like an R-rated kind of home invasion film, and there is an interesting twist with this one as well that I'm not going to spoil here. I have only seen this one once as I was watching it for my year-end list and it also doubled as a Christmas movie for me. This is one, though, that I really do kind of want to rewatch. I've only seen it that once, as I was saying, and I honestly feel like my rating's going to come down a little bit now that I know the twist and everything like that. So as of right now, though, from the only time that I've seen this and for this list here, I have this at a 9 out of 10 for Better Watch Out, and it comes in at my number 10 spot on this list as well. And then for my number nine film, I have Before I Wake from 2016. This was directed by Mike Flanagan, who co-wrote this with Jeff Howard. It stars Kate Bosworth, Thomas Jane, and Jacob Tremblay. This is a drama fantasy horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis is a couple adopt an orphaned child whose dreams and nightmares manifest physically as he sleeps. 
it had a troubled past, so and it was struggling to find distribution, but I ended up watching this, and I think I've seen this either two or three times. This movie really hits me with what the reveal is. We have this creature called the Cankerman that invades this young boy's dreams and everything like that. The truth of what is going on there really is heartfelt and touching for me. And I remember that even after that second viewing, I was still tearing up, and it makes me very sad in the end. But I think this just has such a good story, and we have such great acting, even from the young boy here of Tremblay, who you know has been in quite a few things, including like Doctor Sleep, and I believe it's called Wonder. But this is one that, as I've said, I think I've seen it a couple times, and I feel like my rating probably is not going to go up any higher than what it is. There are some slight issues that I do have with the movie. Mike Flanagan, though, just does a great job, and that is why I think it should come in at this spot here. Last time I saw it, I have it at a 9 out of 10. It's probably still, like, would hover around that rating, maybe even going down to an 8.5, but I don't really think it's going to go much different from where I have it, as this movie just really kind of ticks boxes for me. I don't believe everybody would kind of feel the same exact way, but, you know, this is my list here, so I think that is where it'll stay. Or at least, you know, kind of will hover around this position, depending on how other movies kind of move. And my number 8 film on this list is The Badman from 2018. This is written and directed by Scott Shermer. This stars Ellie Church, Arthur Selifer, and Jason Crow. And it also features Mr. Parker himself and Dave Parker. This is a drama horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.0 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, Mary and JP are kidnapped and tortured by a sadistic clown bent on transforming them into a doll and a dog servile sex slaves that'll be sold to the highest bidder now this one i got to see at the nightmares film festival i actually was given a you know kind of special edition blu-ray because i talked to the director and also the writer afterwards and just told him how much i really enjoyed his film which is kind of funny because he didn't really know how he felt about it this movie is just you know vile with what this clown is doing to these people and just kind of the torment he is putting them through they were such a nice you know cute couple before everything that happens and then just seeing what they have to go through and where they end up in the end really just is kind of an impactful type film i've only seen it that one time on the big screen i do want to actually revisit this at some point i have this sitting at a nine out of ten i do believe my rating will come down a little bit but i still think this is a really good movie i know this isn't going to be for everybody but I do think the 4.0 on IMDb is way out of there. But I also feel like there's probably people that aren't really kind of used to this film. There's only 223 ratings. So I think a lot of people are giving this, you know, they're not used to this type of cinema. So it doesn't really work for them as well as more genre fans. I still think this is a really good movie. And I can't see it change that much for rating wise after, you know, another viewing for this one for sure. But, so that is where I have The Badman coming in at number 8 on my list with a 9 out of 10. And number 7 on this list here is going to be The Black Coat's Daughter. This is from 2015. This is written and directed by Oz Perkins. It stars Emma Roberts, Kiernan Shipka, and Lucy Boynton. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is from Canada. It is currently sitting on a... 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being two girls must battle a mysterious evil force when they get left behind at their boarding school over winter break. Another one that I end up watching as I was trying to, you know, do like a year-end list, and I end up really enjoying this movie. I've only seen it that one time, but it really kind of stuck with me and put Oz Perkins on the map for me. 
it's kind of funny, you know, that I've seen him from like Legally Blonde and then, you know, being the son of Anthony Perkins. And I'm pretty sure his three feature films, I've seen all of them so far. This is still my favorite of the group. And I think it's the best in my opinion as well. This is one that I do definitely want to rewatch again as last time I did like a top 10 list of my favorite horror films, this one was on there. I'd be curious to see if that's still, you know, sitting that way as I've watched a lot more movies, you know, since I made that list and sent it into Horror Corridor. You know, shout out to Mr. Watson there. But this one I still think is a really good film. Be curious to see where my rating would be after a second viewing, but I'm sitting at still a 9 out of 10 on The Black Coat's Daughter after that one viewing. And then at number 6, I have The Birds from 1963. This is directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It was from the story by Daphne du Maurier and then the screenplay by Evan Hunter. This stars Rod Taylor, Tippi Hedren, and Jessica Tandy. This is a drama horror mystery romance film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.7 on IMDb and a... 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, a wealthy San Francisco socialite pursues a potential boyfriend to a small northern California town that slowly takes a turn for the bizarre when the birds of all kinds suddenly start to attack people. Now, this is a movie that, as a kid, I really liked. My parents showed it to me at a pretty young age, and I mean, it terrified my dad as a boy. And then this is one, though, that as I started watching it as an adult, I really kind of... I guess my rating kind of came down on it. I really didn't think it was as good as I remembered it being. Now, I did recently watch this a couple years ago in the theater as the Gateway Film Center likes to do a Hitchcock marathon in October. So I did get to see it on the big screen. You know, this is one of the movies on the list that I've seen probably more than most any of the other ones. I think it's a really good movie. And I think it's kind of scary that nobody really knows what is making these birds do this. But, you know, having something that they're like that outnumber us that much turn it like decide that it's going to be you know kill humans and everything like that and just attack us is terrifying so after that last viewing though i will say that i kind of have solidified what i think this movie will sit with me for and that rating for the birds is a nine out of ten for me and it just misses you know that top five position on this list here for kind of the reasons i've already laid out as well and then as i was saying here starting my top five i have blue velvet from 1986 this is written and directed by David Lynch. It stars Isabella Rossellini, Kyle McLaughlin, and Dennis Hopper. This is a drama mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.7 on IMDb and a 4.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being The discovery of a severed human ear found in a field leads a young man on an investigation related to a beautiful, mysterious nightclub singer and a group of psychopathic criminals who have kidnapped her child. Now, some people might question if this is horror or not. I just think the weird feel of this film really kind of solidifies that it is one for me. Now, this, I believe, was in the Fangoria Top 300 horror films issue, which also kind of makes me think that it's a horror film. But... Like I said, the setting and the atmosphere of this is just great. We have this college student of Jeffrey Beaumont who is really in over his head trying to investigate these things. But like, I think his small town that he has returned to really just doesn't have anything going on. And I love how close to like the dark and seedy part of the town it is. And he just puts himself in these positions that kind of change everybody's lives. And I mean, he does end up trying to help the singer of Dorothy Valens. But it just takes him on a nightmarish journey, which is 
there's a great, you know, portrayal by Dennis Hopper in this movie as his drug out leader of these psychos and just the different things that they kind of go. There's that Lynchian feel to it where this one's more grounded in reality than some of his other films, but there's still kind of this nightmare that he is, you know, giving us on the screen and everything like that. I really enjoy this film. I did get to see it on the big screen at the Gateway Film Center. So I think it also kind of really helped there. This movie has gone up every time that I've seen it. I think I've seen it two or three times now total. But this one is really good. And yet again, another one that I have coming in, you know, to start my top five with a nine out of ten for Blue Velvet. And then at number four, I have Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is from 1992. This is directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Comes from the novel, of course, from Bram Stoker. And then the screenplay is James V. Hart was the writer. Gary Oldman stars along with Winona Ryder and Anthony Hopkins. And this is a horror film that is from the United States and a co-production with the United Kingdom. This is sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With synopsis being the centuries-old vampire Count Dracula comes to England to seduce his barrister John Harker's fiance Mina Murray and inflict havoc in the foreign land. Now, I know there's a lot of contention with this movie. I actually really do enjoy this. I remember when it came out, there was the video game, and there was just stuff everywhere about this movie. And I actually didn't even watch it until I got a little bit older. I would pick up parts and stuff when they're on the movie channel, but I never fully sat down and watched it. And, I mean, this is a, you know, a two-hour-long movie as well. Now, the most recent viewing that I had for this was part of the podcast under the stairs summer challenge series for the 1990s and i actually really end up enjoying that viewing there gary oldman is just great as dracula and i think for the most part the cast is pretty great across the board as well i mean anthony hopkins as van helsing and then i mean really the only one that's not very good would end up being jonathan harker being portrayed by keanu reeves he's just i don't think he's a great actor i think he takes on roles that are good for him but I'm not going to really delve too much into that. I think the effects look good here. This one does focus more on the love story than I think the novel does and just in general like that. But I think this is a great movie overall with just the character development and everything like that. So for Bram Stoker's Dracula here, I have it at a 9.5 out of 10. And then coming in at number three for me is Blood and Black Lace. This goes by the original title of Six Done per Alassassino. And then this is another one from the great Mario Bava. The story and screenplay are from Marcello Fondanto. And then there's collaboration here between Bava and Giuseppe Barilli. And then the English version adaptation is Mary Arden. And then this stars Cameron Mitchell, Eva Bartok, and Thomas Rainier. This is a horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production amongst Italy, France, and West Germany. This is currently sitting on a... 7.2 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a mass shadowy killer brutally murders the models of a scandalous fashion house in Rome. Now, I know this is one of the earlier Giallo films, and I'll be honest, I picked this one up because of the Fangoria Top 300 issue. I watched it and thought it was good, but then subsequent viewings after I've learned more about Giallo films, this one keeps going up and up for me every time. Did give this a rewatch thanks to the T Puts Collective, Where to Begin with Giallo. This one was, I think, one of the first episodes on there. Like, I think it might have been the second one. And I'm really glad that I gave it a reviewing there just because this movie really does have some good elements. And you can see how the kind of subgenre here of Giallo kind of grew from this. This is still where it's kind of a horror film and less of like a police procedural. We do kind of get the, you know, investigation and type stuff by people who aren't cops. And I just think there's some. 
solid deaths. They don't go over the top with them, but we do still get some good ones. But definitely a great film that I do want to have in my rotation here pretty regularly now that I have, you know, come to appreciate it more and more. And then for my rating here of Blood and Black Lace, I have it at a 9.5 out of 10 as well. The number two on my list is Bliss from 2019. This was written and directed by Joe Bigos. It stars Dora Madison, True Collins, and Reese Wakefield. This is a drama horror mystery thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd with the synopsis here being a brilliant painter facing the worst creative block of her life turns to anything she can to complete her masterpiece spiraling into a hallucinatory hellscape of drugs sex murder and the sleazy underbelly of los angeles this is a movie only saw it once i remember seeing the trailer before things at the gateway film center where i end up going to see it there on the big screen and i'll tell you what i fell in love with this movie visually this movie is stunning and this is one of the first one I think I saw by Bigos, and then I ended up seeing VFW not too long after that. And he's just a director that I'm a really big fan of and will watch anything that he's done. I do need to seek out some of his older films just to kind of see where I sit with them. But most people are pretty high on those as well. Don't really want to give away what the, you know, end up being in this movie here. But I think it takes a realistic approach to it. And I mean, after that one viewing, I was stunned. And this was one of my favorite films from that year when this was released. So I don't really want to delve too much into it. I do need to rewatch this one to see where I'm at. I do think my rating will probably come down a little bit from where I was after that first one because I was quite stunned with it and I've actually put in a rule so I don't really kind of overestimate some of these things you know, going forward. But this one viewing that I had of Bliss, I end up giving it a 10 out of 10. That's where it's still sitting with me currently. It'll probably go down as I was saying, but that's where I was after that first viewing. And that is why this is coming in at number two here on this list. And then for my number one movie here on this list of the top horror films, starting with the letter B for me, I have Black Swan from 2010. This is directed by Darren Aronofsky. The screenplay is written amongst Mark Haymond, Andreas Hines, John L. McLaughlin, and the story is from Andreas Hines as well. This stars Natalie Portman, Mila Kunis, and Vincent Cassell. This is a drama thriller technically, but I think there's a lot of elements in here that actually push it into the horror genre in my opinion. This is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 8.0 on IMDb and a 4.0 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being a committed dancer struggles to maintain her sanity after winning the lead role in a production of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. Now, the first time I saw this movie, I was blown away. I was watching it over at my buddy Robert's house, and we were just kind of blown away by everything that we were seeing here. I think we have great performances from Portman as well as Kunis, and, I mean, Vincent Cassell is just a great actor in my opinion as well. He's one I wish I could see more movies of his, and I probably guess I could seek out more of them. But then just seeing Natalie Portman, everything that she goes through to try to win this lead role, and then seeing the like madness that she descends in trying to you know maintain it and everything. There's such great allegories in this film, some great imagery that we get to see here. I love the duality of you know being in white and then things turning into like the black swan and everything like that. It's really just a powerful movie in my opinion. I ended up watching this a few years after that and was just blown as way as I was that first time. So it's one that has held up for me. I do really want to give this one another rewatch as well. I think my rating here is probably not going to change much from what it is. I do think this is one that is 
pretty solidified in where it's sitting that it's always going to be pretty high up on this list for me here. So, of course, if you had to guess what the rating for the last movie was, I rate The Black Swan as a 10 out of 10 as well. So that's all I really wanted to go through for this list here. It's kind of interesting some of, you know, some directors pop up a few different times here and whatnot like that. I think it's a pretty solid list. This one has a little bit, you know, closer ratings than the letter A list that I have as well. That one also has some rewatches that I need to do at some point in my life. But that's all I really want to delve into here. I'm going to kick you over to one more break before I close everything out here on this show. I would like to welcome you back one last time here and then just to close everything out for episode number 75 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback that you'd like there or if you'd like to, you know, kind of have anything read on the show, just kind of let me know what you send in the email there and I can definitely, you know, make sure that happens. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past ones, that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. The Instagram page that I have is David OSU87. Then the Journey with a Cinephile also has its own Instagram at Journey with a Cinephile, all one word there. And I'll also have all of those links in the show notes just to make it easier for you. And the last thing that I would ask for you to do is that whatever podcatching device that you are listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. And the other thing I would ask as well, if you could rate and review, just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as get out there to a much larger audience as well. And then for the next episode, number 76 is going to be my next Odyssey Through the Ones, which I believe is going to be number four for that. I'm going to end up watching the new Wrong Turn movie from this year, as I haven't seen that one yet, and it's one that... I've been kind of wanting to see. I've heard some mixed reviews on it, so I'm definitely kind of curious to see where I fall on that one. And then I'm going to pair this up with a 1931 film called The Drums of Jeopardy. I don't necessarily know if they you know, sync up all that well, but this one does have a person who is trying to get revenge for something that happens to his daughter, and then it seems like he's going after a family. So I can kind of make some you know, correlation there with the murder as well as you know, family type thing mixed in as well. I think that's all I really wanted to get you up to speed with before I close everything out here. So what I will say is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 